Father in heaven, today I just pray you would hide me behind the cross. And as I speak today, that the message that those in this conference need to hear, those who may be listening to this on audioverse, help them to receive the message that they need for their time and their context. We pray in your name. Amen. So, <clears throat> these are the objectives that we are covering. We're hoping to understand why the Great Commission uh, needs to be at the center of our medical missionary work. Uh, to understand the importance of sacrificial love in that pursuit. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about partnering with the church. That's been a, a common theme. And uh, we will demonstrate how to incorporate practical applications of what I call design thinking in <clears throat> medical ministry. We're going to start by talking the first 20 minutes about um, just my, my journey into, into medical ministry. And then after that, <clears throat> discuss... Um, Kind of talk about practical examples and the things that I've learned. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to grab my notes in case I get nervous here. Okay. So, <clears throat> I noticed from the beginning that God had created in me a desire to serve. Uh, I remember an early age, around age 16... I went to the general conference in 2000 um, in Toronto. And after coming back, I was on fire. Um, I wanted to serve God. And I remember uh, uh, calling some of my classmates. And we went and we ministered to those uh, in an orphanage. In, in college, that same passion pretty much uh, uh, persisted. Um, I went to Andrews University. And there in the early 2000s, I, um, I went to this ministry called Benton Harbor Outreach. And uh, I ultimately would become a leader in that ministry where over 100 students uh, would be present uh, every week as we did children's ministries, gathering children, singing songs with them, playing games with them, teaching them Bible stories, uh, praying with people in the neighborhood from door to door, giving Bible studies. Uh, in the nursing home, we had a ministry there where we were kind of singing to those that were there. Uh, and what I found was that service, there was a sweet taste of service. I found connection. I found challenge. Um, I found ministry. And I knew that's what my life uh, was going to be. Um, but <clears throat> I want, the, the question I have for you is, what would I take? What would it take not just to have a few scattered experiences of service, but to have a life that is full of service, a life that is full of ministry? Essentially, to have a life that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What would it look like for that to happen? Well, <clears throat> I'm going to jump to 2013 here. I found myself at a critical juncture. Um, it was, that was the, the final year of my family medicine residency, uh, and I was uh, a senior resident at Kaiser Permanente there in northern Los Angeles, and uh, most of my classmates, you know, ended up getting some very nice Kaiser jobs. If, if you know Kaiser, it's kind of, they take very good care of you, and a lot of physicians will work their whole life to, to finally be a Kaiser a doctor, and I had an opportunity uh, to uh, to get into the Kaiser system because I had went through uh, their training program. Uh, I was also engaged to a girl that was from Southern California, and we were just going to settle down right there, and and life was going to be good. That was my plan. But if you have plans, don't hold on to them too tightly because we make plans, but God laughs, and. My plans to get married began to deteriorate, okay? Um, it turns out that um, though the woman I was with initially had promised to marry me, she no longer could move forward with her plans towards matrimony. And the relationship began to deteriorate, and it finally ended. And I ended up brokenhearted about that. That was a difficult time in my life. Um, and I remember there was, <clears throat> during that time, 
that uh, this was after we had broken up, and I was driving from Los Angeles to Loma Linda to spend the night with my sister and brother. And in my mind, I was determined, I'm going to get back together with this girl. And I'm going to tell her all the reasons why. All right? I'm going to use the strength and, 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 and force of logic as to why we should get back together and had all these reasons. We were, you know, we could do music together, we could do ministry together, we could do da 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 on and on and on. And while I was driving back, um, God told me something. And I'll tell you how I knew. It was because while I was driving and I was rehearsing how this encounter was going to go, I decided to listen to a sermon. It was a sermon by Dwight Nelson. And in the middle of that sermon, um, by the way, I don't remember what the sermon was about. It wasn't about marriage. It wasn't about relationships. Um, But during that sermon, he read this verse. And this verse really spoke to me. And that verse is found in Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. It says this. Forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. See, I am doing something new. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And the moment I heard that, God was telling me, you know what, Andrew? Put this relationship behind you. Put it behind you. And I remember finding God, is this really what you're convicting me to do? Yes. Sometimes, many times, I don't hear the, the voice of God very clearly, but there are these moments in life, boom, and it's crystal clear. This was one of those rare moments. And I knew that I had to listen. I knew I had to obey. That day I chose, you know what? I'm putting this relationship behind me for good. Maybe God is opening up something else for me. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I had to obey in order to know what that was going to be. And I'm thankful that I did. Around this same time, I met... Um, a man named John Torquato. Now, this was my final year of residency, and we get to set up electives. Um, and I, I knew that I wanted to kind of see what life would look like beyond residency, and I wanted to spend some time with physicians who I admired. I admired James Appel. He was a missionary doctor out in Chad, had been there for 10-plus years, and so I set up an elective to be with him. Um, but my sister had spent some time with an interesting doctor. She had... Uh, went, uh, she had taken some time to go to Spokane, Washington, where they were doing an evangelistic series, led up by a pastor and a physician. Now, this physician was interesting, because he was doing evangelism in Spokane, Washington, but his practice was in North Idaho, there in Hayden. But what he had done is he had taken time off his private practice just to do this evangelism with this pastor. And not only that... He had put himself on a pastor's wage, even as a physician. Not just that, but he also had a dedicated staff, all who were Seventh-day Adventist Christians, many uh, who worked sacrificially. At that time, he even had a nurse working for him for $10 an hour. And I just remember being inspired. I was like, wow, what, what is this? This is interesting. Why would somebody do something like that. So, my interest was piqued. I emailed the man. He called me a few days later um, to spend some time there, not in Washington, but in Idaho. And um, before I knew it, um, I was on a plane going to a state that was famous for one thing. Potatoes. So that everyone knows. That's the only thing people know about Idaho, it seems. Um, so, as I was there... Um, I noticed that the person uh, who, who picked me up was, um, was, was none other than the attending himself, John Torquato. Oh, this is interesting. You know, usually, you know, when you do rotations at other sites, it's not the attending that comes and picks you up. You've got to figure that out, or you've got to talk to a coordinator. Okay? But this attending had picked me up. But that wasn't it. He had done something else. Okay, baby? Okay. Um, she, she's pregnant, so I didn't make sure things are fine there. In case you weren't sure. 
Um, so I had to make sure. Oh, so, so not only had he picked me up in the airport, he invited me over to his house to sleep. Like I would spend the night with him and his family during the two-week rotation. Whoa, that's interesting. You know, attendings at other rotations don't invite you to their home to spend the night for whole two weeks. This was going to be a different rotation. But, you know, that wasn't it. He also invited me to partake at the dinner table with his family. In fact, they had breakfast every morning, and I would have breakfast with him. Him and his wife, his, his four other children. And, and not just that, he would send me to work with some lunch. It was a good deal. <laughs> I knew this rotation was going to be something different. And I remember talking to Dr. John, I said, and he would ask me, hey, what is it that you desire? Why have you come here? So I told him. I said, Dr. John, I, I want to know, I want to know the techniques for medical ministry. I want to know the words. I want to know the phrases. That's, that's why I'm here. And he would tell me something I'd never forget. He would say this. Andrew, let me tell you something. Ministry, medical ministry, is not something that you do. It's who you are in Jesus. Medical ministry is not something you do. It's who you are in Jesus. And so, but, okay. Hold on, wait, wait. But I want to know, what do I say to a patient for, so that they're going to pray with me? But in the visit, and he would say, first, medical ministry isn't something you do. It's who you are in Jesus. Yeah, 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 but, but I want to know how to be effective in medical ministry. First, medical ministry isn't something you do. It's who you are in Jesus. But how, how do you get them to the point where they want to do a Bible study with you? Andrew, first, medical ministry isn't something you do. It's who you are in Jesus. And he would go on. He'd say, so, so since medical ministry is who you are in Jesus, it's going to mean that you've got to spend some time with him. And so I want you to spend some time in prayer and Bible study in the morning for an hour. That was different than any rotation I'd been to. No intending had given me an assignment to do something like that. Okay, that, that's interesting. Oh, and, and by the way, since medical ministry isn't something you do, it's who you are in Jesus. Let's see, let me fix this here. Um, since it's who you are in Jesus, um, you're going to have to be balanced. You see, balance is an important part of medical ministry. Now, you know, I was a theory resident. I know what balance was for the last seven years of my life. I had gone through four years of med school with three years of residency. So I want you to get eight hours of sleep every night. Oh, and, and, and by the way, you should also exercise too. That's good with you. For, you know. And um, you should join our family for breakfast in the morning because that's our main meal of the day. But, all right, Dr. John, you want me to spend an hour about in the morning you want me to, to exercise, and then I, I gotta get take a shower, and, and then I've got to, like you know, eat breakfast. What? What if I'm not ready to go to work? What if I'm gonna be late? And he says, this, "You know what? Then that's fine. You're late." But that is what I want your priority to be. You see, I got a sense that this is a man who just didn't care about the clinical knowledge or information, or the proficiency that I had as a physician, though that was important. He was actually caring about my heart, my soul, my spiritual life. And every day of that rotation, I never missed a day, getting up early, making sure I exercise, um, and getting to work on time. Because when you sense that somebody cares for you and loves you that much, it motivates you to do the right thing and to do what has to be done. So, in the clinic, what I saw um, was truly a physician that lived by the mantra of ministry, medical ministry is something that you do, it's, 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 it's who you are, it's something that flows from the heart. And that's what I saw. That's what I saw when I was there with Dr. John. I didn't see a technique or anything like that. I just saw that ministry kind of flowed. It flowed from the words, it flowed 
from the conversations, he'd spend sometimes 30 minutes with patients, sometimes 45 minutes, sometimes a full hour, you know, um, you know, getting backed up with everything. There's one story in particular, excuse me, one story in particular that, come, that uh, sticks out as I think about Dr. John, and it's a story of a patient, his name is Dale, and I can tell you a story because he's made his story public. But uh, Dale is, is a patient who has uh, two pancreases and three kidneys. You see, he had uh, type 1 diabetes. They tried an experimental pancreatic uh, transplant that failed. Um, he had, uh, due to poorly uncontrolled diabetes, had to go on end-stage renal dialysis, needed a trans- kidney transplant, uh, then underwent some marital stress, divorce, and again failed that kidney as well. Um, and so had to go back on dialysis. By this time, Dale had gained a lot of weight. He had gained a significant amount of weight. And when he saw his surgeon in Seattle, surgeon put him up on the table, examined him, said, Dale, uh, you're obese, and you need to lose weight, and you're off the transplant list until you do so. That was hard. Dale tried to, to lose weight, went to multiple weight loss programs, even attended some programs from the church, but still had a really hard time and was starting to feel rather desperate. So at this point, Dr. John decided to spring into action and after consulting with Dale's nephrologist and endocrinologist, embarked on a, on a bold plan, even kind of extreme. Um, but... We had to do something because Dale was not getting better. He wasn't able to get the weight off. And we decided to do this. He decided to go on a three-day water-only fast, followed by only vegetables for an entire month. Um, And I I remember the day before we did that, um, Dale was the last patient. And we called in the entire staff. And so the, the staff there was, was, fit, was fit there in that small exam room, and Dale was sitting there at the center. And we all put our hands on Dale, and we prayed. Each of us went around, we prayed, God, give Dale the power to overcome appetite and give us success in what we're trying to do with Dale's life. The next day he began the fast, um, and he actually attended our church camp out. And people, again, at church surrounded him. And pray for Dale. I think God would give him the power. Um, on Sunday, I actually drove out to his uh, place there in Smelterville, Idaho, and um, visited him. We had to normalize uh, his, stabilize his sugars, bring down his insulin a little bit because his, his sugar levels were indeed dropping. And I continued to encourage him uh, with what he was going through. All in all, Dale was finally able, by God's grace, to finish 72 hours of water-only fasting. Um, and after that, ate just vegetables. And he was successful. I'll tell you why. Because at the end of that month, we went on a bike ride. There's Dale right there. Um, he lost 35 pounds. Um, a lot of it was probably water weight. Um, and I would see Dale, and we went on this bike ride. It was a 15-mile bike ride on the Hiawatha Trail there in Idaho, if you ever get a chance. And you go through these dark tunnels that are sometimes like a mile long. I was very timid about doing something like this. God, should I really do this? Well, we did it, and praise God, nothing happened. It was a successful bike ride. Dale was able to uh, complete it successfully. And in the, during the middle of those, uh, those, uh, those rests, he would take out his baggie of vegetables that had carrots and cucumber, and that was it. No dressing, no nothing. And that's what he would snack on to kind of keep him going. A year later, Dale would ultimately receive uh, his, he would, he would get back on the, the kidney transplant list and ultimately receive his kidney. His life was changed. The amazing thing to me about that story was that it was, yes, it was great that Dale got his kidney, but when, Dr., uh, when, when Dale went on that fast for three days and three nights, 
Dr. John also went on that fast with him, to have solidarity with him, to sacrifice with him, to pray with him, and to lift him up. That was medical ministry in action. That was ministry flowing from heart. That wasn't a technique or formula or anything like that. And Dale was touched because of that. And he, he told me how much, how much it meant to him to have his physician suffering and sacrificing right beside him as he was going through that process. And you... So I go back to this question, what would it take? What would it take to have an effective medical ministry? To have Christ in you, which is the theme of this conference. I knew that maybe God was calling me to something like that. That degree of effectiveness, that degree of connection, that degree of being with a patient. Um, and I was like, maybe I need to just join Dr. John. I want to join Dr. John, be with him, and, uh, you know, and then learn, learn about medical ministry for this year. And, uh, and then I found out that, I was like, oh, but that's right, he's on a pastor's salary. Oof. Now let me tell you, when you go from a resident to an attendant, that's the best raise you ever get. You will never get another better raise than that, right? It's like, woof, oh, wow. And uh, I went to look up a pastor's salary. I said, oof, I'm not going to get any raise here. Uh, and it was very difficult. I mean, I kind of laugh about it now, but it was, that, that was hard because I saw that. I was like, God, thanks, but no thanks. Not for me. Can't do it. Not going to do it. Then I opened up and, uh, and read my Bible. Now, if you tell God no, be careful about opening up and reading your Bible. Because I opened up to Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23, and it says, A certain young ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, Still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad. Because he was very wealthy. As I was reading that story, it was difficult to deny the parallels to my own life. You see, this, this, this person in Jesus' story was young. And I also saw that, wow, I, I'm also at the very beginning of my career, and I see the potential that I have. This person was rich. I'm be sure I wasn't rich. I had student loans. But as a physician, you recognize the potential that you have for wealth. This person was a ruler. And as a, as a physician, I recognize the influence that I would have, the influence that you all have. Whenever you enter a room, when you are a part of a church or a part of a community, the instant respect that people give you. That was me in that story. But like me in that story... I recognized, too, that I was saying no to Jesus also. And that conviction hit me so hard because I realized, oh, this is what God is calling me to do. And I remember trying to say, okay, God, I'm going to give this to you, but I couldn't. In that moment, I couldn't surrender that to him. And I felt like Peter who had denied Jesus three times and there were just tears streaming down my face as this, as this realization was hitting me. I couldn't give it up to God. So I prayed the next best thing. I prayed this. I said, I said Lord, um, make me willing to be made willing. Make me willing to be made willing. Something didn't happen immediately, but over time, um, God will begin to change my heart. And I wish we had time to kind of get more into the story, but uh, we don't have um, that time today. 
but I would basically f- discover that within a year's time, I would be working with Dr. John uh, on a pastor's salary, responding to God's call. You see, I was worried about the stubbornness in my heart. But I surrendered that to God, and he gave me a willing heart. I was worried about my student loans, but I surrendered that to God, and he provided for me. Ultimately, Dr. John would set up a nonprofit so, so I could get some public service loan forgiveness. I, I was worried about my lodging, but I surrendered that to God, and he sheltered me. He was, Dr. John and his family actually built a room in their garage. That's where I would live for the next couple of years of my life. Um, I was worried about going into the wilderness of Idaho in my singleness. <laughs> but I surrender that to God. Bless me with a wife and a kid. And our, our next one is due next month. What would it take? What does it take to have a life, Christ in you, an effective medical ministry, a life full of mission? This is the quote uh, that we've been thinking about, and I return to it today. The officers who were sent to Jesus came back with a report that never man spake as he spoke. But the reason for this was that never man lived as he lived. Had his life been other than it was, he could not have spoken as he did. Ministry of Healing, page 469. <clears throat> so never a man spoke as he spoke because never a man lived as he lived. Let's translate that to our context today. Never a physician spake as he spoke. Because never had a physician lived as he lived. What would it take to live as no other physician lived? I think that was the challenge that was put to me. What would it take? It would take a full surrender of my life to Jesus. It would take the willingness to sacrifice and to put everything on the line for him. Because you see, ministry isn't something that you do. It's who you are. And what it is when you come to that point that then ministry can flow from your heart and your words will give life. Your words and actions will give life. It'll convict hearts. It'll save souls. Uh, and so... If you feel that God is calling you to surrender your heart to him, I invite you to do that. You won't regret it. And for those of you that are hearing this now or on Audioverse, if you are interested in being a physician ministry in the United States and working on a pastor's salary, come and contact me. We have opportunities in Washington, Idaho, and maybe even on some on the East Coast. So right now I want to talk, uh, I want to transition our presentation to the kind of the practical examples. You have a little bit of my history. But I, I, I did, they, they did talk, ask me to talk about the practical examples of, of medical ministry. And so I want to talk about our first uh, concept here. Um, this past year, we have the opportunity to, to, uh, to take uh, medical students from Loma Linda. And there was one medical student who was particularly sharp. Um, her, her name is uh, Victoria. And we were talking about, man, what made this clinic inspiring? If you ever get a chance to come up, I know, and visit the clinic, I invite you to do so. Many patients and our physicians are inspired by doing so and are motivated to do ministry. Medical students also come up as well to kind of see how we do ministry and things like that and what it means um, to combine the gospel work and also the medical work. And as I was talking to Victoria, we were talking about all the heights of the clinic. What made it an inspiring place? What made it unique? Was it the fact that we asked each patient on the check-in list whether or not they wanted to pray with us? That's good. No, no, maybe it was the fact that the, the doctor sacrificed and was on a pastor's wage. Okay? Uh, maybe it was the fact, though, that, that all the staff was Seventh-day Adventist, and so everyone was focused on the mission at hand. And as I was talking to her, she's like, Doc, those are good. 
But that's not what makes you guys special. It's like, really? What is it? And she said this, you know, the thing that makes your practice special is you have made fulfilling the Great Commission the center of your medical practice. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it unique. And as I was thinking about it, the other way you could put it would be the way Dr. John puts it. And he puts it this way. We change the practice of medicine to meet mission goals. We change the practice of medicine to meet mission goals. You see, sometimes we do the opposite, right? We have this successful practice, right? We, we set up something that's really good. And then afterwards, we say, hey, look, how do I fit ministry into the nooks and the crannies? How do I take mission and, then, and, and, and fit that into what's left over? But the principle that we have tried to adhere to is this. Hey, look, we change the practice of medicine to meet mission goals. And I think that is important. That is kind of the, what we have to do here if we're truly going to be successful. And this actually goes nicely with, with my next concept of uh, design thinking. Um, this here, I'm showing uh, right now a picture of a truck that's stuck under a bridge. And as the story goes, the the driver tried to go forward, didn't go anywhere. Tried to go backward, it didn't go anywhere. And they called forth the, the engineers, the, the firemen, the mechanics to, to see, hey, look, how do we fix this problem? And some of the engineers are saying, hey, look, look, you know what you got to do? You got to break the bridge. If you, if you destroy the bridge, break it down, then the truck can go free. Uh, some of the mechanics were looking at it, no, 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 no. What you have to do is you have to dismantle the truck. Just, you know, tear it apart and, and then reassemble it and, uh, and then the truck can go free at that point. As the story goes, there was a 12-year-old boy on his bike and as he was going by, he, he was hearing this conversation and he asked them a question, hey, hey, have you guys tried letting the air out of the tires? <clears throat> so that's what they did. Let the air out of the tires and lo and behold, poof, they're able to break free. I love the story because it... it, it shows you how sometimes these simple solutions can solve complex problems. And sometimes solutions can come from unexpected places. But design thinking begs the question, it begs this, if we were to take mission, make it the most important thing of your practice, what would your practice look like? That's what design thinking is about. This here is a, it's like a living room, and it's, you know, it's pretty. What do you feel like doing if you're in this living room? Yeah, exactly. You feel like watching TV. That's what I would feel like doing. If I was sitting there, hey, look, I want to watch TV, right? Why? The furniture is pointed to the television, okay? The television has a dominant presence. What about this living room? If I was in this living room, I would just feel like socializing, right? Talking to uh, other people in the living room, okay? And that's what this family is doing uh, right there. The point is this. You can make somebody feel something just by stepping into a space. You can make them want to do something just by what they observe, uh, uh, observe around them. You know? And this is a concept, too, that Mark was talking about last night. How what Disney says, uh, what, what they call archetyp- archetypal theming, where you build your mission, purpose, and values into the architecture itself. And it really is something that's true. And something that we try to do here at our clinic... Um, this is a, a painting by Nathan Green called The Chief of Staff. We have it there kind of on the side of the wall. And it's Jesus kind of guiding the hand uh, of, of the surgeon. Uh, we don't do major surgeries at our outpatient clinic, but it kind of gives the idea of what we are um, about. This painting has had effect on our patients. And we've had a patient that went through. She saw the painting. She, she uh, did the check-in process and her vitals done. She had a chief complaint. I addressed the chief complaint. And at the end of the visit, she says, Doc, I can't come back here. I like, oh, why is that? It's too religious. She left. She was offended by the gospel. I realized that I have to be okay with that. I'm not here to serve everybody. I'm here to serve those who are open to receiving the gospel or at least willing to tolerate somebody who is faith-based. This picture has another story. There's another patient that stepped in to our lobby. 
and she saw this picture. She had instant recognition of it. She had seen this picture when she was in an Adventist hospital in Japan delivering her baby. And when she saw this picture, bam, it was instant trust that she had. That was the first step that she would take in her long journey to ultimately be baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Um, there's other relig- uh, religious art that we have. It's like a, it looks like a Snellen chart, but it says that you know, we walk by faith. Uh, we have um, uh, kind of ornate Bible verses up here where, where whether you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. Okay? And we have another one. This one on the right actually is the most talked about piece of, uh, most talked about quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Usually patients ask, Doc, what does that mean? Literature, uh, as you see there in the sample when you literature is, is, is an important part. You know, are you, are you providing uh, the latest Hollywood gossip in People magazine? Uh, are you giving the anxiety-provoking current events in Time magazine? Um, why not provide some, some health literature, maybe even some religious literature? Something that we do is the more health literature we keep at the front, but the more uh, religious, if it's maybe overt, overtly religious or specifically those that are, that are more Adventist-like, we'll keep in the back. And so if I sense, man, this, this person needs a closer walk with God, I will go and, and I'll give them a steps to Christ. Um, and if I feel like they're up to it too, maybe I'll even uh, give them you know, the great controversy or, or something similar to that. And I keep literature in the back. So there's actually two spaces for literature. One at the front that uh, is kind of for display. And then we have literature for the back for one of these tents. Oh, look, this patient has a need. Let me take this book, this, this, um, you know, uh, this pamphlet and give it to them. Something that's been missing here that you don't see in the waiting room that we haven't talked about is actually music. People haven't talked about music. Uh, but that's also an important part, I think, about setting up, um, uh, setting up an environment where people's hearts are ready to meet Jesus. Right? That's what you want to do. Right? How do you prepare someone's heart to encounter Jesus? Because that's the thinking that we have when we're at our medical office. And that's why we have the faith flags. That's why we have the literature. That's why we have the music. Okay. Now, the music we have is religious music without words. It's religious music without words. And I asked Dr. John about it. Why, why don't you put words to it? It's like, it's like well, I, I don't want to offend people. It's like, okay, that's interesting. But what I realize is this. You don't want faith. You want faith to be present, but you don't want it to be overbearing. You want to be present, you don't want it to be overbearing. And so the balance for us has been to have religious music without words. Uh, there's a lot of good streaming services out there. Pandora is one of them. You get, you get it for $5 a month. Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon also have for about $10 a month. Huh? It's also available free, but you have, you have to deal with the ads. So this one, it gets rid of the ads. You may have to click, though, to select. You have to curate it. So if a, if a, if a song is not appropriate, you have to thumbs down it. If it is, then you thumbs up it. Um, Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, hey, let me know what some of those free streaming services are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to write that down. When I'm trying to compile some resources for Adventist physicians and, and you know, maybe make it a part of a blog. This is something that we do, too, as well. We have um, these check boxes that say, I have a prescription that needs to be filled. Um, I need a school or work note, and they can just kind of check the boxes. And then there's that last box there. I would appreciate prayer today. Uh, I get a lot of people that come and say, Doc, that, that's amazing. I've never had a patient, I've never had a physician ask me to pray with them before. And they're amazed just by having that there. If they don't check the box, then I don't assume that the patient doesn't want prayer. I simply look for other opportunities to minister to them. So, before I've even seen the patient, they've seen the religious artwork, they've seen the literature, they've been listening to the music, they've received excellent warm um, service from our staff, and finally, I get to see them, right? Now, uh, I, I, this is a slide here now on praying with patients. There are some doctors, I think, that they have formalized, say, hey, look, I'm going to pray with every single patient, okay? Okay. Um, 
And then there are some doctors who say, look, I'm only going to pray with the patient if the, if the patient initiates it. Okay? Remember, men, medical ministry is not something that you do. It's who you are. And I have found that I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Okay? Um, I don't think I offer it to every single patient, but neither do I uh, only wait for patients to initiate. Um, I look for opportunities. You know, and if we had time, this, it would be a great conversation. Um, and by the way, it would be great if someone could kind of talk about those two extremes and, and, and those approaches. And I'd love to hear maybe a physician or a presentation talk about those, uh, those two approaches, the ethics and their personal experience behind it. But I'm just sharing, you, uh, sharing with you my experience. So I think a patient who's fearful. Look for a patient that's scared, that's fearful. That is a good opportunity to minister to them. How many times in the Bible does God say, hey, fear not? In fact, um, author and neurosurgeon David Levy shares this story. He writes the book, uh, Gray Matters, which is one of the best books I've read on the physician, praying with patients. His experience started in a dental chair. He was scared. Uh, He was nervous. He was anxious. And the dentist put his hand on his shoulder, said a prayer for him, and he felt instant peace and calm. That was the initial event that launched a career where he would be praying with patients as a neurosurgeon, a neurovascular surgeon. <clears throat> Number two is the patient struggling. When you meet with patients, they many times will trust you. They'll develop a close relationship with you. Maybe they're having struggle with their spouse or children um, and a relative. Uh, you can offer up uh, the grace of God and his power to, to intervene and to help in their situation. Maybe uh, the patient who's amazed. They come to your office, Doc, I've never seen a place like this before. Wow. This is where God probably wanted me to come. Right? I think the experience of awe is a religious experience. You can't stand under the stars and be amazed and in awe of our Creator. There are probably other uh, opportunities, other scenarios too, where you can pray with patients. I haven't covered it exhaustively here. Well, what would it be for you? What opportunities do you look for? Specific opportunities for patients who would benefit from prayer. Praying uh, worship staff. Uh, sorry. Beginning the day with worship with your staff. Um, I would argue that beginning our day with worship with our staff is arguably the most important thing that we do in our day. Now, for some of you, that might be impossible, that would be hard. Maybe you're part of an employment situation. See if your MA, your medical assistant, would be willing to do that. Say, hey, look, let's start the day with prayer or, or a discussion or a worship. And what we do is we just spend 10 minutes um, usually talking about the, anticipating the needs of the day, kind of a short huddle. This patient's coming in for this. Let's make sure we anticipate that. Uh, and then we spend the next 10 to 15 minutes in a short devotional and a prayer. And that's it. Okay. Yet, it is very powerful. Why? Number one, it clarifies the mission. We as humans are forgetful. We forget why we're here. We especially forget it when we're in groups of people. And it clarifies the mission when you have worship. They remember why they're there. You remember why they're there. The staff remembers why they're there. It also communicates care for your staff. The staff wants to know that you care for them. And when you have worship, it engenders loyalty to the Lord and engenders love towards you. This is a physician that's ministering to me. This is a physician that is helping me. And three, it creates a spirit of sacrifice. Um, I like what Dr. John says. He says, look, even the most mundane, regular tasks, when done with a spirit of devotion or sacrifice, is received to the Lord as worship. And we need that reminder. We need that reminder every day. And that's why we pray and have worship. Because it reminds us that, yes, even these tasks are acceptable to the Lord himself. Uh, Finally, um, partnering with the church. And that's been a theme at Amen every year. You will hear about this. If people are going to see Christ in you, they're going to need to see his hands. They're going to need to see his feet. They're going to need to see... His body. That's the church. So you've got to have the church a part of what you're doing. And it's not going to come by accident. You've got to cast the vision 
for the church. And so something that I know I've done over at Hayden in Idaho, if I said, hey, look, church, what if, brothers and sisters, what if this community looked to this church as a center of hope and healing? What if they said about this church, hey, look, that's the church where my dad reversed his diabetes. What if they say, look, 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 that's, that's the church where my aunt learned to quit smoking. Or, hey, that's the church where my sister who was struggling with depression was finally able to overcome it. You know, Tony Campolo puts it this way. He says, look, if your church were to shut down today, would your community show up at its front doors in protest, preventing you from actually shutting down? Okay? Or would you just kind of quietly go away and nobody would notice? So we've got to partner with the church because that is essential to what we're trying to do. And I have a list here of programs that you can do in partnership with the church. Um, and so there's a Breathe Free 2.0. This is the, uh, by the way, you'll get a handout of, of, of these programs so you can you know, look it over. Um, but Breathe Free 2.0 is the a journal conference revamped five-day quit smoking program. And uh, it's pretty good, professionally done. Um, it's also scientifically based. It's got good, short, entertaining videos that are two minutes long that are entertaining and also communicate a moral message. Uh, and it's free. It's, only, it's, it's hard to get because sometimes the journal conference isn't as responsive, but it's a good one to get. There's a Preventing Reversing Diabetes by Stephen Grundy. This is a good program out from Tennessee. Um, it's big. Uh, it, he's got good physiology. He's got good stories, and it's been time-tested. So this is a good program uh, to get as well if you're working on diabetes. Of course, he's there in the, in the Bible Belt where there's a lot of obesity too. So that's also very good. Eight Weeks to Wellness by Don Hall. This is a good one. A little bit on the pricey side, but comes with PowerPoint, uh, assessments, workbooks. Um, it's very data-driven. So a lot of like uh, population studies data. Uh, a little bit weaker on stories and weaker on like physiology and whatnot. But it's also a good program. Uh, the Whole Life by Joshua Vasquez. This is a new kit that um, my friend Joshua has done. Um, he discovered that there is no resources out there to help health coaches. And so he's designed a program where a church member has a manual and a workbook and says, Hey, look, here's an eight weeks to wellness program. Let's go on this journey together. And it helps facilitate relationships. It's scientifically based. It's also spiritually based. It's a, it's a new program. I called The Whole Life, and I'll have that in the handout. Make sure you pick up the handout so you can go to his website. It's grandfinaleseminars.com. Um, you've heard about some of those. Wind Wellness is a good website, too. They've got 1,200-plus slides of professionally done. It's nice because they give you everything to say. They give you all the slides, everything, and you just present. I think you should always try to personalize the presentation, uh, however. But Wind Wellness is another good resource. And then finally... Um, a shameless plug, thechristiandoctor.com. That's a blog that I do. My mission is to, um, to help hurried providers uh, understand spiritual principles um, so they can participate with God in the transformation of a patient. And in short, I want to help you share Jesus. So subscribe to that and, um, and receive encouragement so that you can do that and do that effectively. What are some of the keys to successfully, successfully um, successful church-based seminar? Um, here's some things that I've learned. Uh, number one, create a good team with clear tasks. Uh, you need a team. You can't do it by yourself. can't have your office do it. And you really what you need to do is get a lot of people on your church. Well, you need to be communicating with your health ministry's director. And they kind of need to be the person that's really doing a lot of the organization and the planning and developing their team. The team that I had had a team of like four or five, and it could expand a team of 20 to 30 people. Uh, and so your church probably needs something like that. Number two, have a good check-in process. You want to be able to track what patients are coming in. Be able to follow up with them when you can. Number three, deliver a scientific and personal presentation with a spiritual connection. It's got to be scientific. They're coming to you as the expert. Personal, right? That makes it come to life. Share personal stories. Share stories about your patients, okay? Don't just read off the slides. And with a spiritual connection. Every single time I give a presentation, I'm looking, hey, look, what spiritual connection can I make? I want to plant these seeds. I want to plant these seeds. That's what you have to do at every single presentation. Um, and many times, that, by the way, that connection many times is, hey, look, 
this is how, uh, in order to achieve this, you'll need to depend on God. That's many times the spiritual connection that we're looking for is surrender to God, dependence on God in order to make these lifestyle changes. Number four, take before and after measurements. Let them see this makes a difference, right? Let them see it for themselves. Provide a workbook, makes it more professional. Number six is interesting. This is something that you probably haven't heard a lot, but we found successful. Create small groups for discussions during seminar. Create small groups for discussion during the seminar. And that's because... You know, we used to have chairs kind of lined up in rows, and then, you know, I would give a presentation, that was it. But what we discovered is that when you set up small groups, and you put a church member there as kind of the group leader leading out of the discussions, then what do you do in that, in that case? You facilitate a relationship there, right? And that's what we're trying to do. We want to help enable the church, empower the church, facilitate the relationship between the church and the community and your patients so a relationship can form them Hopefully bring them to Jesus, right? Remember, it's not going to be a technique. It's going to be relationships. It's going to be who you are. And hopefully, you're the, uh, the patients will see the kind of the selfless, Christ-like people that are in your church. Because we have them, right? Right? They're in our church. Amen? Amen. Number seven, food, food, food. <laughs> people come out when there's food. That's a big part of it. It's also the hardest thing to do, but if you can pull it off, it's helpful. Number eight, provide a hook for them to come back next week. I learned this from the evangelists, right? These evangelists say, hey, look... Next week, we're going to learn, is the rapture really going to happen, right? And people are going to come. You can do the same thing too, right? Next week, I'm going to give you the take on, the, on my take on the keto diet. And let people come out to that. What are the steps to a successful promotion? So you can have a successful program, but if you don't have people showing up to it, it's not going to be successful. You've got to have a successful promotion. So begin... Four to eight weeks prior to the event. Um, have a professionally designed flyer and poster. You know, if you've been in church long enough, you've seen poorly designed flyers and posters. We want to do the opposite of that. Okay? We want to be professional what we do. We want to be on our game. So you want to have a professionally designed flyer and poster. You want to give the flyers out to everybody. Put posters up everywhere. Put them in libraries. Put them in doctor's offices. Put them in community centers. Put them in gymnasiums. Uh, put them in workout places. Um, scatter... The ad everywhere. Create a Facebook ad. I think this is something that's also helpful too. You literally can see thousands of eyeballs just with a Facebook ad. I'll put an ad or article in the newspaper. That's another way to get it. And then make church announcements. Again, we want the church to be involved. And so you want to motivate them. I think it's more difficult to invite someone to a prophecy seminar, right? Versus, oh, look, maybe I should invite my neighbor who has diabetes to the diabetes seminar. And it makes them more alert to the needs of the community that are around them and seeing how they can meet those specific needs. Um, personally, invite patients. I know that what we did, what I did is even months before we did our diabetes program, I took a list of people that were interested. I asked them, hey, look, I'm going to be doing a diabetes program. I'm the one teaching it. By the way, it's helpful if you're the one teaching it. That really is a good motivator. Would you like to come out to that? I'd like to add, we'll call you when we're about to do the program. And I had a list of about 50 people that we called. Um, number seven, register patients. Uh, that helps with the retention. Eight, offer a discount with a deadline. This was, this was a pretty good idea. We actually tried this last time. It was quite successful. But you have like an early bird discount. People love this stuff, you know. We, it was 69 bucks, but we said, we'll, we'll cut it down to $49 if you sign up by August the 4th. People were signing up. They're like, they, did, they wanted to save that $20. Okay? So offer a discount with a deadline, an early bird discount. That can be very helpful in terms of a, a successful uh, promotion. So oh, this is good. Call those who have registered the day of the program. We learned this from Mark Finley. He did some studies on it. He found, hey, look, if you call people the day of the program, you're going to increase your retention, your retention rate for the people that actually who have registered to come by about 15 to 30%. So call them the day of the program as a reminder, okay? That will also is quite success, uh, helpful in, in uh, promoting a successful program. So we actually did this. We did all those steps that I was telling you about. And typically our church will see anywhere from like zero to five people from the community, on a, on, a, on a maybe on a bad day, and maybe on a good day like 15 to 20. And we had this time about 47 people come out from the community on our first day. And there was good retention uh, throughout. Uh, so 
you know, these things can be quite successful, uh, I think. Um, I just want to end on a story uh, we call smoking lockdown. Um, by the way, you should just start doing these things. Just start doing it. And when you start, it's going to be small, but it'll grow. I remember the first program we did, it was a smoking cessation program. And we had like 15 people saying, Doc, yes, I will show up. I will do that. How many people actually came out? Five, right? Five people. Like, oof. All right, that's fine. Um, But again, these things are learning things. And so we did the class, and it was great. I tell you what, you know, you have five people in there talking about the difficulties of quitting smoking, why they smoke, why they want to quit smoking. There was good interaction. It was great. Day two came. They came back. All right, look, look, this is why you want to, you know, we want to quit smoking because of this and, and, and that and, and it, good laughing, good interaction. And then at the end of the class, I said, all right, guys, um, tomorrow we're going to quit smoking. And everyone looked at each other like, what? What did I sign up for? <laughs> yeah, this is a smoking cessation class, you guys. We've got to quit smoking by tomorrow. And uh, so the next day came. And my class went from five people to one person. <laughs> and this one person still had not quit. It was rough. And so we implemented something called a smoking lockdown. Now, to be sure, legally, you cannot actually lock a person up. That's illegal against the law, so don't do it. But I think it adds to the drama of it, a smoking lockdown. And so I remember telling her, I was like, look, and I can tell your story because uh, I, um, she's given me permission to make it public. I said, look, Frankie, this, this, this is what we got to do. You need to come to a smoking lock. She's like, what? She's like, yeah, we're going to lock you up for three days and say you quit smoking. Huh? And she's like, what? Yeah, you come to the church. You come to the church, and you know what we're going to do? We'll be there. Me, Chuck, other people, we're just going to be with you as you detox, as you quit smoking. We're just going to be with you there. And uh, she's like, really? She's like, yeah, that's what you got to do. So Friday came, and she had her, ba- she had her bags packed. She had her, her, her sleeping bag, okay? And we set it up. We set up where she showed up there on Friday. I showed up in the morning. Um, we had a little bit of a worship. I had to see Paige that day. I came back. And we actually had other people. We actually had a second uh, a smoker that joined us as well. And we had people from the church come by and give us meals so that we could be sustained uh, through the weekend. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was good. It was, it, was, it, was such a, it was such a good weekend. Um, I could get, uh, get into more of it. I, she had on... When she showed up, she's like, Doc, I almost didn't show today. I was like, why is that? I found out that we're homeless. It's like, mm. Apparently, they had to be kicked out. 24 hours later, she says, Doc, I can't, I can't believe it. But my boyfriend actually found a place. It's bigger. It's cheaper. And I can't believe we actually have a place to stay. I said, Frankie, if you honor God, he is going to honor you. So she was starting to realize, hey, look, maybe this is, the, this is where I need to be right now. She finished the... Smoking lockdown was like three days. She didn't smoke. She was feeling good. Um, she's like, Doc, I feel better. I can't believe this. And then she went home. Um, I got a call back later, a few days later, and she said, and the mess, and she gave me a message. The message was this: Doc, can you do that smoking lockdown thing again? I started smoking again. <laughs> oh man, couldn't believe it. All that effort. That's what happened. Well. A few days passed, and something interesting happened. I got another message from her. And this time the message was this. Doc, i got to tell you something. And actually, she came in and she told me the story. She said, I, 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 you guys gave me a Bible of promises. I read that Bible. And there was a verse in Psalm that says, I cried out to the Lord, and he delivered me. And I read that verse, and I said, you know, I'm going to do that. And she cried out to the Lord for the Lord to deliver her. Then she said, Amen, and she went out to grab a smoke. Well, she found something interesting. When she went to grab a smoke, she took the cigarette to her mouth, and she started vomiting. She just started vomiting over and over and over and over again. She says, what, what this, has happened, this hasn't happened in my 20, 30 years of smoking. What's going on here? She realized in that moment that God was sending her a miracle to be disgusted and be repelled by the smoking And since that day, she has not picked up a cigarette. You see, God had delivered a miracle to her. And that's Frankie. 
uh, right there in the middle. She is delivered from smoking. So, um, so yeah. Uh, in the end, remember, medical ministry is not something that you do. It's who you are. I'll be around for questions if you want. Um, oh, let's, let, let's, let's end with prayer, shall we? And then Arvi's got, she's in the, wave your hands, Arvi, so people know who you are. There you go. She's got a handout I want to give you guys. Let's close with prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you are alive and well working in us, in our churches, with our pastors, with our physicians. Help us honor you in all that we do here. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.